As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Ladies and gentlemen. May I have your attention, please? It's the year 2000. And just like J-Lo and Paris Hilton, I am donning a rather sexy, juicy couture tracksuit, which uh, is probably never going to go out of fashion. We're going to have a problem here. Meanwhile, for the first time ever, the European Championship hosting duties are shared. Belgium and the Netherlands will welcome the best 16 teams on the continent for four groups of four. The top two go through, and then it's straight to the knockout rounds. So, let's go and see what Group A looks like. It looks tough. We've got the holders, Germany. We've got England's golden generation. We've got Portugal's golden generation. And we've got Romania's golden generation. Albeit the 1994 version. But all is not as it appears. There were all these reports, even at the time, that players were very unhappy with with training. Raphael Honigstein is the Athletics' German football writer. They would basically just play around a bit and then at the end of the the session, somebody would say, hey, what about corners? Oh, yeah, let's, let's, let's just take 10 corners. <laughs> I mean, it was really like that. It was really amateur, amateur hour. And the first game against Romania goes really well. Well, the game starts horrendously badly for Germany as Thomas Linke gets pulled out to the right, completely misses the long ball. And then there's two Romanians bearing down on two Germans, one of them, which is Mateus as a sweeper. The other is Novotny, who's supposed to mark Moldovan at the far post, but completely loses him. And Germany are one of them. Germany get away with a one-all draw. But what about England? They're managed by Kevin Keegan now, and while they only just squeaked past Scotland in the playoffs, this is some team. I remember going and getting a tabloid newspaper and taking out the chart where you can put all the scores in and trying to plot England's route through to the final. Lindsay Hooper is an English football reporter and part of the Totally Football Show. We've got some great players. I loved Beckham, loved Scholes. Uh, Michael Owen had come through. And I was, I was just convinced we were going to have a really good run. And the first game against Portugal, I mean, the first 20 minutes, I was beside myself because we were 2-0 we were up. McManaman had scored. Paul Scholes looked like he was absolutely on it for, for this tournament. And I used to go around to a, a local pub near my, my parents, actually, with friends to watch all of these matches. And it was just delirium. 
I mean, everyone thought that's it, you know, we're going to get to at least the semi finals in this tournament. But the excitement doesn't last. If you watch that game, Portugal were just magnificent. Even when England went 2 0 up, Portugal were playing really well. Tom Cundert is the creator of Portugal. And what really, I think, impressed people and kind of it's kind of the golden era coming of age because they didn't panic, didn't panic at all, just continued playing their football. And uh, of course, turned it round by half time. It was uh, all level and Portugal were well on top. And it was really no surprise when they managed to, uh, to finish it off and get the win. Suddenly from going all positive, I'm then thinking, oh, we might go home early this tournament. Portugal follow that up with a 1-0 win over Romania, thanks to a very late winning goal from Costinha. And so there's a lot riding on the clash in Charleroi between Germany and England. And it is a corker. Corker. Corker and a half. <laughs> I blanked out. I hardly remember it. That could also just be my memory protecting myself from the trauma. It was a really drab game. It was one of the, the, the games that I think that people were most looking forward to in the group stage. But then it was a complete letdown. Not only was it a bad game, but also two teams that were really struggling in this competition. Uh, Germany more so than, than England, uh, decided by that uh, solitary Shearer goal, there was really very little in it. Uh, both teams sort of cancelled each other out. There was the hooliganism. By mid-afternoon, we are told by the police there will be a riot in Brussels. Some of Britain's most notorious hooligans are in town. In the tournament, away from matters on the pitch, and, and that had been awful. I mean, I think by this point, UEFA... Uh, starting to say, you know, if teams get in real trouble here and their fan support starts getting out of control, then teams could go home. And it was sort of dominating headlines going into this and you thought it was going to be feisty on the field, but it wasn't, actually. It was a, it was slightly dull affair. But England, Germany, you don't matter how it comes, if you can win, and we needed to win this match. And Alan Shearer's header was all that decided this game. Make a free kick in towards Michael Lloyd. It's come for Shearer! But it was just the icing on the cake to be able to beat Germany and just keep our hopes alive. And then suddenly this renewed hope that actually we're going to have a long summer. It's going to be the tournament. You know, this is the one to remember. Netherlands, Belgium, are going to remember this. Hmm. Well, Portugal, who've already qualified, opt to put out the reserves against Germany. So it's an ideal opportunity for the Germans to repair the damage from the first two games and get right back on track. In theory, yes. But in reality, it was uh, the biggest disaster of all as this uh, second-string Portugal team completely took Germany apart, especially on counter-attacks. Oliver Kahn just being really exposed time and time again and Sergio Conceição with a hat-trick, killing off this Germany team. It was a, re a real disaster. OK, so Germany are out. That's a bit weird. But England only need a draw against an ageing Romanian team. So they'll be fine, right? No, no, no. We only needed a point. And, and this is the thing. This isn't where we needed a win. We just needed a point. And I actually think that was part of the problem here with the mentality of the England players, thinking that they only had to draw it. Because Romania, I remember they, they were brilliant first half. Even before the match had kicked off, uh, David Seaman got injured in the warm-up, of all things. And those changes Nigel Martin coming in can really unsettle a side I just I had a bad feeling and that first half wasn't great at all second half even when we were leading 2-1 I still wasn't feeling like we could rest on our laurels and 
the late penalty. Phil Neville giving that away. It was just so clumsy. Up against Phil Neville and outpacing Phil Neville who dives in and gives away a penalty. And that's it, isn't it? You just know when it comes to a penalty, we very rarely manage to save them or deny them. And ah, oh. This could put Romania into the quarterfinals. It's Garnea who scores against Nigel Martin. And England are heading out. The pain, the pain of knowing that you're going home at the group stage. We've got Italy on the horizon. How on earth are we not going through in this tournament to Romania? Romania of all teams. But it was like they were giving it just one last go. They put everything into that second half. And they just put more into it than us. They wanted it more than us. Blimey. Portugal and Romania go through then. England and Germany are out. Let's go see Group B. Co-hosts Belgium are off to a cracking start, beating Sweden 2-1 despite a hideous goalkeeping error from Philippe de Wilde. But what can Italy do against Turkey? After their humiliation in 1996 and a disappointing World Cup in 1998, they've got another new manager. So Zoff, after retiring as a player. James Horncastle is the Athletics' Italian correspondent. Did become a coach with Juventus, um, had Gaetano Shirea as his uh, assistant. Shirea tragically passed away, but yeah, he did have some success. Not the success that uh, Juventus wanted, but they were coming up against uh, Saki's Milan at that time, so a very competitive Serie A. And then Zoff invariably went and did things with Lazio, which was kind of quite interesting because he didn't really have a past with them. So he kind of alternated between being a honorary president and a coach. But I think this was very much in keeping the appointment of him of, as Italy coach as, as, as bringing in either an all-time great or a company man. And the surprise with, with Zoff was that you know, even though he was a goalkeeper and someone who'd been very much schooled in in old school Italian football, he he liked making the most of the attacking talent that Italy had, and they certainly had a lot when he was in charge. They open up their campaign with a 2-1 win over Turkey, courtesy of a fine overhead kick from Antonio Conte and a penalty from Filippo Inzaghi. And they win again, three days later, comfortably beating Belgium 2-0. So what on earth is going on? They already had a fantastic generation uh, of players, and they keep adding to it. But the surprise going into this tournament was that Gianluigi Buffon, their new uh, phenomenon, uh, in goal, he had got injured. And also Christian Vieri, he had pulled a muscle playing in a Champions League playoff for Inter against Parma. So he was missing. So all of a sudden you have uh, some quite big changes, but it did not disrupt Italy in the slightest. You had a number of Juventus players who were embittered by the end of uh, the, the league season. They lost the title on the final day. So uh, the likes of Conte, Inzaghi, um, even uh, Pesotto. Um, yeah, they really wanted uh, to channel the anger uh, from that in the best way possible, which was to try and win something with their country. Turkey and Sweden grind out a moody nil-nil, preserving their chances of qualification. But Sweden, led by Henrik Larsson, only just recovered from a really badly broken leg, have to beat Italy to make it through to the next stage. And that's not happening. Italy are on fire. And uh, they made very, very light work of Group B winning uh, all of their games and only conceding two goals. They beat Sweden 2-1. But what of the co-hosts, Belgium? Can they shrug off defeat at the hands of Italy 
and take their place in the last eight? No, they're beaten 2-0 by Turkey. We were the first host country to get out of a tournament in, uh, in, in the group stages. Christophe Terreur is a Belgian football reporter from HLN. It was not a brilliant generation as this generation, but we had a few upcoming talents like Emil Mpenza, but his tournament wasn't as good also because he was a bit distracted. He just started uh, uh, a relationship with, with, uh, with Miss Belgium at that point. Uh, so that's why our main striker was distracted too. Uh, he just met the most beautiful girl in the country. So uh, that was one of those side stories during that tournament. Still, it wasn't all bad news. Belgium's disappointment proved to be the making of them. Basically, Euro 2000 has been the start for our reboot a bit like what happened in, in, in Germany with uh, the, the Federation, the Belgian Federation starting a whole youth development project. And that's a little bit where this golden generation now has come from. It was born during that tournament. The plans with the youth were born during that tournament where we were just awful. Italy and Turkey go through. Let's take a look at Group C. With a pre-tiki-taka Spain, a long-ball Norway, an unheralded Slovenia, and a Yugoslavian side containing only some of the former Yugoslavian regions, you might think that this group would be dull. Oh, you'd be so wrong. Spain take on Norway in their first fixture. Goalkeeper Jose Molina has only just worked his way into the starting lineup. As a goalkeeper, at least. He made his debut for the Spanish national team in 1996 in a friendly against Norway as a left winger. Alvaro Romeo is a Spanish football reporter and part of the Totally Football Show. He played his last game for Spain in 2000 against Norway as well. He made a mistake and uh, he could never recover from that mistake and he never played for Spain again after the mistake he did in 2000. What did he do? Well, uh, the thing that goes wrong is that he makes a crucial mistake for Spain to lose the first game of the tournament because there was a long ball uh, that actually didn't ask the goalkeeper to come out from his goalpost. He did that, he went pretty much to the edge of the box with his hands and uh, he lost that aerial battle and uh, Norway scored the winning goal. So that meant that Spain started the tournament in very bad fashion. Then Slovenia take on the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia and it all goes off. Yugoslavia arrived here as a, it, it was a sort of a comeback for them or for the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, not to confuse people. Sasha Ibril is a Bosnian football journalist and he's in a shopping mall. They were meeting Slovenia, which was, they, they were huge favourites in this match because the Yugoslav team had some great players like, like Dejan Stankovic, like Predrag Mijatovic, Dragan Stojkovic, Sava Milosevic, Mateja Kežman, and they were huge favourites. And after 57 minutes, they were 3-0 down, which was a huge surprise back home in, in Serbia, in Montenegro, as well as in the rest of the Europe. Ouch. Well, there's no coming back for it. Hang on, what? But then uh, Sal Milosevic, who was introduced at, at, uh, in the 60th minute, he, he scored uh, first, I think it was 67th minute. Uh, and after that, Yugoslavia took everything in their hands and played fantastic football for the last uh, uh, 25 minutes. And uh, they've scored twice in the uh, next five minutes to equalise and they've almost won this match. They had a couple of great chances in the last 10 minutes, but they, they couldn't convert them. So, how did Spain react to that Norway defeat? 
Well, they changed the goalkeeper for starters. Enter Santiago Canizares. He was a goalkeeper who um, was a proper character in the sense that uh, he was kind of a philosopher and he translated a little bit of that uh, calmness that he said he was getting to the goal. So he was a very important goalkeeper and uh, around circa 2000 he reached his peak with Valencia. For four or five years he won many titles there and uh, he came on to that tournament at the back of uh, losing a Champions League final with Valencia against Real Madrid. Yugoslavia put themselves in a commanding position with a 1-0 win over Norway, which sets up a gripping finale. Or at least a 50% gripping finale. Norway and Slovenia grind out particularly dull 0-0. Spain and Yugoslavia, however... It was a crazy match. Milosevic, Gvedarica and Komljanovic scored for, for Yugoslavia. They were thought they were in complete control. Listener, they were not in complete control. They had this, what we called, a Balkan mentality, where things uh, easily fall apart. So when, when Spain pressured in the last couple of minutes, when Spain uh, took the ball and tried to, to overturn things. That's what happened. The Balkan mentality just came uh, on the surface and Yugoslavia just lost their head. The game basically was 3-2 for Yugoslavia uh, coming into the aggregate time. And it was extraordinary that Spain in four or five minutes managed to turn the situation around to come back. First of all, with uh, a goal from Mendieta from the penalty spot uh, that looked a little bit uh, non-important because uh, the draw wasn't enough for Spain. And then uh, that sequence that uh, went into Spanish uh, history museum happened. I mean, Guardiola sending a long ball to Ismael Urzaiz, a big target man in the box. Uh, This guy with his head passes the ball to Alfonso and Alfonso from the um, penalty spot just uh, kicked the ball into the net, scoring one of the big goals of Spanish history. Probably the biggest goal in Spanish uh, in in the last decade for Spain for Spain at that time, which tells you what were the standards for Spanish football at the time. A goal to qualify through the group stage was probably one of the greatest goals of Spain at the ta- at the time. Still, Yugoslavia are through with Spain, and that's Group C. Group D is where we find France, along with the Netherlands, the Czech Republic, and Denmark. Roger Le Maire is the manager of France now. And remember, his predecessor won the World Cup. So no pressure, Rog. Le Maire was an, a new manager, a new head coach, but, but an old one as well because he was Aimé Jacquet's assistant in, in 98. Julien Laurent is a French football writer and part of the Totally Football Show. So he knew this squad so well and he made so much sense in a way for him to take over in the sense that all the players knew him. They all liked him. When he was the assistant, he was a bit of the joker. He was very close to the squad, very close to the dressing room. But they, they used to see him as this guy always smiling, always joking, that you could confide in, that you could talk to. His door was always open. And he, he had that kind of role. And then I think when he became the number one, that role was still very much there, which helped that team because that, that team didn't need a, a head coach, really. They were just too good. What they needed is just someone who would make sure that 
everybody got on everybody was involved everybody was committed they didn't need like a, a, a mastermind of tactics or any anyone who was going to change something all they needed was continuity really uh, and and in Le Maire that was perfect he couldn't ask for a better start France take Denmark to pieces winning 3-0 but what about the Dutch They've had a difficult build-up. Frank Rijkaard is the new manager, came in after Goose Hiddink in 1998, where the Dutch did pretty well that tournament, reached the semi-final of the World Cup. Elko Born is a Dutch football writer. Rijkaard was relatively inexperienced at the time, so there were some question marks uh, about his appointment in the beginning. His warm-up friendlies weren't always that great. But it has to be said, I think partly because the tournament was in the Netherlands shared with Belgium, there was generally a pretty good feeling about the whole tournament in the Netherlands. As well because the Dutch did so well in 98. And maybe uh, even more experienced now, this would really be the chance to, to finally win a tournament for this generation. Unfortunately, the omens aren't good. The Dutch are comprehensively outplayed in their first game by the Czech Republic. But if you've ever played football manager, you'll know what I mean when I say that the Czechs got absolutely FM'd. Yeah, it's one of those moments where you play very well as the Czech Republic. Uh, things seem to be going uh, all right in your favor until uh, something happens. Yeah, just like in a video game, I guess. And that something was a last minute Frank de Burr penalty. The good news is that the Czechs can still save themselves with a win. The bad news is that they're playing the world champions and they fall short. Beaten 2-1 and eliminated despite being hailed by the French press as one of the best teams in the competition. Football can be very cruel. The Czechs are joined in the departure lounge by Denmark, soundly thrashed by the Dutch. They meet in the final game and the Czechs restore some pride, winning 2-0. The Danes, on the other hand, go home without scoring a goal, let alone winning a point. That means that the much-vaunted clash between the Netherlands and France is a dead rubber. They both already qualified. So a pretty boring game then? The game itself was great. Uh-huh. Partly thanks to the fact they were both qualified. I think they both really, really played an open game. Otherwise, it might have been much, much more of a cagey affair. But this was an open game. Great game all around. Both sides, some great goals. And, and the, the Dutch managed to win 3-2. So we've had three games to watch them. What's the difference between France 98 and France 2000? They're a far more attacking team, far more of a flair team than they were in 98, where they built their success on the defence and they were very good at it. In 2000, because the squad is pretty much the same, but yet it's a very different squad in the sense that all your attacking players are far better in 2000 than they were in 98. Henri, Trezeguet, Zidane, even Jokev to a certain extent. Plus, you've got the newcomers, Viltord, Anelka. You've got Pires, who's two years older and who will obviously play a key role in that tournament when he was just a, just a kid, really, in 98. So your defenders are as good as they were in 98. They're just older, more experienced, but it's the same ones. And then in midfield, you've got Vieira at his best, really. And then you've got all this attacking talent that you kind of, you had a little bit in 98, but not as good as you have in 2000. But how far can they go? Find out when we come back. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. 
Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Off to the quarterfinals then, and Portugal are picking up the pace. Hardly a surprise, given that they've got one Luis Figo. This is one of his best ever games for Portugal. He just absolutely rang rings around Turkey, you know, set up the two goals. Superb. I remember writing a book about Portuguese football history, got to interview Nuno Gomes about this tournament. And he was just saying that Figo in this game was just absolutely unbelievable. He said it was an absolute pleasure to play with him because you just knew get yourself in the right position and he'd get the ball, you know, right onto your foot or right onto your head. And that's what happened. Two goals by Nuno Gomes, both set up by Luis Figo. In Brussels, Italy bring the curtain down on the last great Romanian side. And it's a bad-tempered end of an era, with the legendary Hadji getting himself sent off in a 2-0 defeat. The Dutch had scored maximum points in Group D and appeared to be hitting their stride. But Johan Cruyff wasn't having any of it. He excoriated them in a national newspaper column before their quarter-final against Yugoslavia. It didn't age well. The Netherlands beat Yugoslavia 6-1. Great game all round, lots of goals. Three goals from Kluivert now, who really seemed to be on fire this match. And yeah, everything, every ball Kluivert got, every time he hit the ball, it just seemed to turn into gold. And he just, he just did so well. Every ball he got, he was able to do something. Everything clicked for the Dutch. It was one goal after the other. Another great confidence boost because what's better for a striker to score three goals in the quarterfinal and for a team to just click so well together to score six goals in total against not a bad opponent normally fun but the most exciting tie is saved for last france and spain head to head in bruges this is the worst game i think Lilian Thuram had all his all his life the whole career even when he was a kid he still he still says it now that no other players in the whole world has given him more nightmares and 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 troubles than Munitis on that on that day. And, and Turam, as you know, was a centre back who played at right back, who played really well for us at right back, and usually was really strong and solid. There was never any problems with him. But that game, oh my word, he had a mare. Well, Munitis was fantastic in the tournament. Uh, this is a player who came from Rafin Santander, a small club in Spain. He didn't uh, start the tournament with big chances of uh, being important or uh, playing a lot, uh, to the point that I believe that in the first couple of games, uh, Pedro Munitis' performances were peripheral, if not non-existing. But against Yugoslavia, he scored a very important goal for Spain. 
And then against France, he was the biggest agitator that the Spanish football had. Zidane opens the scoring with a well-struck free kick, but Manitas draws a penalty out of poor old Turam, and Mendieta equalises. Djorkaev smashes France back into the lead, but Spain are still fighting, and in the last moments, they win themselves a second penalty. From 12 yards, Raul has the chance to send the game into extra time. What does he do? He misses. He misses. He basically disappoints the whole country. But, uh, you know, that was the big time for Raul. Uh, he was 23. Raul wanted to step up. And he did rightly so, in my opinion, just making sure that he was taking the penalty because he was the biggest Spanish star. But he missed. Uh, he didn't find the target. He hit the ball over the crossbar. And those were shattered dreams again for Spanish people. Oh! Would you believe it? It wasn't even close. France then, everyone agrees, are clear favourites when they face Portugal in the semi-final. Unfortunately, someone forgot to CC Portugal, because they opened the scoring. They weren't afraid of, of France. Portugal played well, talking about you know amazing individual players and talking again about Nuno Gomes. He just People just waxed lyrical, even Portuguese people, about the performance of Zinedine Zidane in this semi-final. It is a test. It's a big test. One, because they're, they're a very talented team. Uh, two, because they score first, which the French are not really used to anymore. If you think about it, through the, this whole incredible generation, it's very rare for them to, to go behind. I think there's a, there's a time where they almost are kind of knocked out by the Portugal goal quite early on as well. I think 20 minute or 22nd minute. This is, this is Zidane masterclass from start to finish though. Of all the games he had where he was unplayable, uh, maybe the best, the, the best one is the quarterfinal of the 06 World Cup against Brazil. But this is this is quite close. This is a close contender for Zidane's best game individually, where he's he's untouchable, he's unplayable. They can't get the ball off him. The French regroup at halftime and come out renewed. They equalise through Thierry Henry, and then deep into extra time, drama. Sylvain Wiltord's shot is blocked by the hand of Abel Xavier. Penalty. And Portugal do not take the decision well. That's putting it lightly. Yeah, it was a very disappointing end from, uh, you know, Portuguese hot-headed, uh, kind of Latin attitude really came to the fore. Nuno Gomes got a nine-month uh, suspension for his reaction towards the referee. Other players got similar really, really big suspensions because they they just refused to take it, really. And But it was the correct decision. And again, speaking to Nuno Gomes in that very, that very interview about his tournament, I asked him, you know, I said, did it take you a long time to get over this? Did you realise that perhaps the referee had been correct, you know, a few weeks after? And he said, no, we realised as soon as we got in a hotel that the referee had been correct. <laughs> it was the right decision. It was the right decision. It was just, you know, there was so much adrenaline and so much pumped up emotion in all of the players. Zidane steps up. In that kind of form, there was no way he would miss. No way. Impossible. And not him. Not at this stage where he was probably the best player in the world. Not after a game like this. Not when he was a golden goal. So you score, you go through to the final. It was it was impossible for him to miss. He missed. Nah, just kidding. Of course he scored. Zidane. 
Zidane, Zizou, envoie les champions du monde. France are in the final, Portugal are in a strop, and off we go to Amsterdam for Italy versus the Netherlands. And the Dutch play like they've got early dinner reservations. The Netherlands just started really, really well. And like things had really clicked in the previous games against Yugoslavia especially, the team must have been full of confidence because you could tell how they felt good in this game. It was the semi-final of a big tournament, but it was at home. It was in the Amsterdam Arena. And things just uh, uh, got off to a great start in this game. Their dominance is rewarded. First, Zambrotta is dismissed for a second bookable offence. Then Nesta fouls Cliver and the Dutch have a penalty. Up steps Frank de Boer. He's the captain of his team. Obviously, there's a lot of pressure on in the semi-final of the Euros. But, you know, as the captain, you take your responsibility. But uh, Frank de Boer uh, shoots and he misses. Oh, well, it happens. Best to get something like that out of the way, eh? An hour into the game, there's a chance to make amends. Davids goes down and Clivert gets a chance from the spot. Missing one penalty in the game is maybe one thing. Frank de Boer, captain of the team, had missed it. So maybe the next uh, try should be for the striker uh, of your team, one who scored quite a few goals this tournament already. You would say confident at this point in the tournament, confident in his, uh, in his ability to score. But uh, Clifford shoots and he hits the post and another penalty is missed this game. Right. OK, well, there's 30 minutes left and Italy are down to 10 men. The only thing that could possibly save them at this point is a classic Italian rearguard action. If you look at the, the defence that they had at that time, I mean, they essentially played with a, a back five, which is, is Paolo Maldini, Mark Giuliano, famous for stopping Ronaldo in 98, Cannavaro and Alessandro Nesta, even the guys protecting them, really. You had someone who could do both sides of the, the, the game in Dimitri Albertini, someone who could pick a, a wonderful pass but could also get around the pitch dynamic. And then Gigi Di Biagio as well, who uh, was very much an enforcer as well as a bit of a, a playmaker, also had a wonderful range of passing. So in that, you had... A group of players, uh, even within a team, let's say five or six players, who if you if you ask them to play a shadow game in in in, in training, um, or if you ask them to play five against eleven, they'd probably be pretty confident about keeping you out. But I think gradually, as the game went on, and uh, Holland missed those penalties, all of a sudden the pressure seemed to build on the hosts. How were they uh, going to break down this Italian defence? The longer it went on, the more nervous they got, and that played in the Italians' hands. So, it's a penalty shootout. But the Dutch have had some in-game practice, haven't they? I mean, what are the odds that they'll miss any more? Di Biagio opens the shootout. Second time of asking for Frank de Boer. Nee, 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 who is this mogelijk? Who is this mogelijk? Oh boy. Pesotto? Si! Si! Yep, Stam? Oh, over the hole and what over? No, 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 no. Totti? Eh, Senior! Totti ha rischiato il. Cliver? No, this is good. It gives nog wat hope. Yeah, it seems like the Dutch have given up hope. Maldini? Van der Sar Fara. Oh my life, the comeback is on. Bosveld! Nee, het is over. Het Nederlands elftal ligt eruit. Zuid-Afara, siamo in finale. 
Italia è in finale con la Francia al termine di una gara. Ah, I see. Well, on behalf of everyone in England, thanks for taking the heat off us. Oh, wait. It would be remiss not to talk about Totti's penalty because that is one of the most iconic moments in Italy Euro history. Okay. So Italy, who'd gone out on penalties in each of the last three World Cups, normally... They would be very, very tense. But uh, Francesco Totti had been practicing uh, his penenka all week. Of course, in Roman dialect, what he calls a penenka is a cucchiaio, a spoon that you lift, lift over the goalkeeper. And whilst the players are all stood on the halfway line waiting for their turn, Totti turns to uh, Maldini and some of his, uh, his other Italian colleagues and says, Moji faccio un cucchiaio. Which in, in, in Roman is I'm 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 gonna lob him. I'm gonna I'm gonna chip him. With that, he sets off on his walk to the spot and they're all like, No, Francesco, no, you're crazy. What are you doing? This is mad. And uh, of course it's not mad because you have a a world class player in his prime and he goes and does it. He makes Edwin van der Sar looks like a fool. And at that point you just knew Italy were going to the final. And so to Rotterdam for the grand final. But there's not much that's grand about it. It's a tight and scrappy affair. But Italy take the lead. Italy in the first 15 minutes in particular um, were outstanding. Um, you know, they, they could have, have got in front earlier than they actually did. Del Vecchio was, uh, was put through on goal. And yeah, I think there's a sense that even though France began to settle into the game and Zidane sort of started to get the measure um, of Italy, that they were in control. But they prepared the final so much better than us. The way they set up tactically with their back five, the way they, they, they marked Zidane, the way they pressed on Deschamps, the way they, the way they attacked on the wings and especially on the left wing, which, which their goal comes from. They were so good, the way Totti played, they just prepared the game far better than us. And suddenly, what should have been quite a straightforward final of, okay, we've beaten them all the last times. There was there should have been no problems. And yet, they were so good. We, there was nothing we could do. It was blocked. The way they played tactically was so brilliant. The goal they scored was great. They could have probably scored the second one as well. And it was just like, what's going on? And the clock was ticking. And the time was running down. And we were like, God, is this all going to this? This is maybe the best generation we've ever had, even maybe better than the ones in the 80s. And yet, we're going to lose in the final against our best or worst enemies in a game that we, we just completely missed because, because there was nothing good that we were doing in that game at all until, until the last few, few minutes of the game. Ah, yes. And we are playing the 93rd minute and it's a goal kick. And really, this should never happen. But Bartes hoofed the ball, literally hoofed the ball as far as he can. And considering the Italians had been so good so far, they knew exactly how to defend on us, what to do, how to press, where to press, that this ball is only going on David Trezeguet's head. No one else, no one else can head this ball down. No one else. Because Viltord is like three foot. Thierry Henry can't head the ball up. Pires is three foot. Zidane doesn't do headers. So the only player who could head the ball is Trezeguet. So if you're 
Nesta, if you're Cannavaro, if you're Juliano, if you're Maldini, I don't know, who cares? Just go on Trezeguet, put three guys on him, and you head the ball first, and the game is yours, and you win the final, you win the Euros. And somehow, Trezeguet wins the ball, flicks it onto Viltor's path, first touch, left foot half volley. Viltor! And the game turns on his head on that moment, on the moment where the Italians allowed Trezeguet to flick the ball towards Viltor. I think that, uh, to, to use an Italian term, cut the legs off the Azzurri. Into extra time then, and once more, we're in golden goal territory. All eyes are on one man to do the job. Zidane is the best player in the world. There's no way, you know, in the Euros final, Zidane should pass the ball to Pires. And yet, he thinks, here you go, Robert, takes the ball. So Pires is with the ball on the left-hand side, given by Zidane himself. He's thinking like, uh-oh, what do I do now? And he sees a bit of space and he goes, dribble past one Italian, then a second. And then he's at, he's at the edge of the box on the left-hand side. And he knows, he knows Trezeguet is there. And if you look at Trezeguet's movement, it's, it's perfect. Is I'm going, I'm going on the right, so the, the Italian defenders goes right, and then and then Trezeguet stops his run and comes back onto the left, and he's gained that yard that's going to make the difference. The ball arrives, and it's on his left foot, and it, he hits the purest, cleanest, most beautiful half volley that you would ever see right in the top right corner of Toldo. Devant lui avec Albertini, ballon perdu, récupéré par Roby Pires. Allez, il va déborder, Roby Pires, oui Il y a du monde, il y a du monde, il y a Trezeguet Ah oui L'équipe de France est championne d'Europe L'équipe de France est championne d'Europe grâce à Pires et Trezeguet sur ce coup-là, mais aussi grâce à Wilton, et c'est fabuleux and, and it's just the most beautiful goal you could have to win a Euros in those circumstances, with all that drama, with everything. And Trezeguet is the hero when, really, he hasn't had a good tournament, apart from those 10 minutes in the final where he sets up Wilton's goal and he scores the winner with with the most beautiful volleys. And it's just incredible. And when you, you see some of the French, don't realize that it's the golden goal that we've actually won it. After being so close of losing it, we've won it. Many French football supporters rate this victory above the 1998 World Cup win. You know why? It feels immense because 98, you win it, you're on home soil, you won it because you're the best defender in the world. And, and you deserve to win it, but it's a bit, the climax is not great. This climax is the best climax ever. This is better than sex. It's better than anything else because, because you were so close of losing it, but also because you've been the best team through the whole tournament. You were head and shoulders above everybody else. You were, you had great players, great individual performances, great collective performances, great goals, uh, and, and great drama through the whole thing. And it's just, it felt so good. It felt incredible. And there it is. That's Euro 2000. Join us next time for the greatest underdog story in international football since the one we told you about two episodes ago. Your experts were Elko Born for the Netherlands, Lindsay Hooper for England, Raphael Honigstein for Germany, James Horncastle for Italy, Sasha Ebrill for Yugoslavia, Tom Kunder for Portugal, Julien Laurent for France, Alvaro Romeo for Spain, and Christophe Terreur for Belgium. The History of the European Championships was an athletic media company production. 
You can subscribe to The Athletic and listen to the rest of the series ad-free by using the promo code theathletic.com forward slash history. The History of the European Championships was written and presented by me, Ian McIntosh, and produced by Abby Patterson. The Athletic.